This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello and welcome on today's episode of got Mark Pollock, who is a previous rower, adventurist, where he was up the South Pole, uh, ran Sahara and other asked other very adventurous sports. In 2010, he had an accident where he fell out of a two-story building and broke from his lower spine downwards. He is currently exploring and discovering a cure to walk again. Hello and welcome to the show, Mark. How are you doing? Great, great, thanks. Um, when did you discover that you were vision impaired, Mark? I probably, as my parents discovered uh, before I could even remember that I was very, very short-sighted, so I wore really thick glasses. And, well, I think, in fact, I was trying to eat my... Uh, eat my dinner off the off the table rather than off the plate as a one or two year old and, and they brought me in for a test and discovered I was short sighted and I had to wear, wear really thick glasses um, but the first I really remember of it was, was whenever I went I was in hospital after being diagnosed with a detached retina in my right eye uh, and um, had an operation and, and didn't recover from, from that so I was really my my memories of a child right through my teenage years until I was 22 was someone with, who could only see out of one eye with the risk of having a detached retina if I got a knock on the head and um, sort of avoiding contact sports, avoiding getting a bang in the head, but always knowing that I had that, that risk. Uh, how did it feel growing up with a sight loss? Well, I suppose I didn't really even 
consider myself having a, a, a visual impairment. You know, I, I was able to say so I had to avoid contact sports and I had to avoid trying, avoid getting a knock on the head and, and risking that detached retina. But as an eight-year-old, I, um, I did get a, a guy who was throwing a football, um, kind of throwing a football, and another guy ducked and it hit me in the face and broke my glasses and ultimately I had a detached retina in, the, in my only good eye aged eight and I went to London and had oil put into the eye to try and save the site um, which ultimately reattached the retina and save the site which ultimately happened and the result of that operation the oil being in the eye meant that I had a, a, a cataract aged 11 and the cataract was taken out, which was great from my point of view because they took the whole lens out as well, which meant that my short sight went from being, leaving me with really thick glasses to, to only having to wear reading glasses. So really, from the age of 11 uh, until I was 14, maybe 15, things were going fine. And then I, I had another detachment in my left eye, another operation in London, and things really stabilized right through until I was 22. But that whole time from from a child right through to being 22, despite the those kind of shocks or operations uh, which interrupted life, I really didn't think of myself as visually impaired. Now, looking back, I, I really couldn't see the board very well in school and had to I suppose divert my life into away from contact sports into sports that I could play uh, like sailing and rowing but I, I ultimately got my driving test I could cycle a bike probably wasn't doing it very safely but um, yeah I, I just I suppose I didn't know how little I could or couldn't couldn't see but I could see enough to do me After you graduated from secondary school did you go on to college? Yeah, I I came I, I grew up in, in Northern Ireland just in a place called Hollywood where um, now of course when I was growing up there um, nobody really knew where it was but now Rory McIlroy the golfer has put it on the map and uh, also the guy Jamie Dor- Dornan who is the actor in The Fall and Fifty Shades of Grey so there are two famous people from, from Hollywood but I I grew up in Hollywood, went to school in Belfast, and after my A-levels, I came, well, I, in fact, I'd been rowing in, in, in school, and when I got my A-levels, or whenever I was preparing to do my A-levels, I, I really wanted to come down to, to university in, in Dublin, to go to Trinity College in Dublin, not for the academic side of things, really, but in fact, to, to be involved in in Dublin University Boat Club, uh, Trinity were these really stripy, black and white stripy uh, t-shirts, and I, I could, I could always see them on the river, and they were generally coming first, but they were really vivid uh, uh, uniforms that they, they wore. They were very successful as well, and I wanted to go and um, get on to that, get on to that crew, and and, and be involved in in those, in those boats. So, so I came. I came from uh, school down to Trinity and spent four years studying for a business studies in economics degree 
in uh, in Dublin, socialising in Dublin, mainly socialising and rowing, in fact, rather than rather than doing any studying. Um, and as I say, I, I, I cycled all around the, all around the city, lived um, in various student flats, and had a full full student student life uh, in here in Dublin. So. Um, you came down to Trinity and started rowing. Were you excited to row for Trinity? Yeah, well, I, I, as a junior, um, uh, as a schoolboy rower, I had rowed for um, I rowed at the home internationals for for Ireland, England, um, Ireland, Scotland, Wales. I I rowed for Ireland, but you looked at the clubs that were that were really leading the way. Um, universities and clubs all, all kind of row uh, with, in the same category so Kennedy were really very much up there as to top one or two in the country and I had the opportunity to to go and experience what it would be like to row with them and going from a schoolboy into kind of senior setup like that uh, the thing that I noticed in particular was the, just the, the difference in strength from schoolboys through to seniors, it just the whole feel of the boat was completely different. And to go to have a chance of of making one of those crews was uh, was my big aim to try and get selected for the first date. And uh, that was my kind of number one goal. And then I went on to row again for Ireland. Um, uh, and and also to, to captain the, the boat club as well. So as, as you know, I arrived in Dublin, didn't really know anyone. Or, although my girlfriend from from the north, she came down as well. She was really the only other person that I knew. And uh, we're in this new new city, and the boat club, even within Trinity, the boat club was a, a familiar place where I made friends and and had a base to kind of build everything from. In being a captain for for Trinity and getting rowing for Ireland was that a very exciting time in your life at that stage? Hugely, hugely exciting, and everything everything was a, a small, a little progression forward. You you get on the get on the crew, and then and then you start to win some races, and then you do some trials. And before I knew it, we were in nineteen it was nineteen ninety six. I suppose I was about. 20 and I remember I remember I was able to see at that time and I was watching the Olympics and the uh, four um, from Ireland came fourth in the Olympics in 1996 and the following year 97 I was selected with a, a, a teammate of mine from Trinity to be the the spare pair and um, so there was the four who'd come forth in the Olympics and then we were we were the next boat and we went out and trained in, in Spain and uh, Banyolas where the 1992 Olympic Games had been we were there for six weeks and uh, the World Championships was going to be in France uh, and just about 10 days after six weeks of training well you know a year of training but six weeks in in, in Banyolas in, in Spain Ten days before the World Championships, the four kind of one of the guys got sick, and their boats kind of disintegrated. And their their best two guys dropped down into the pair and uh, went and won a I think they won a silver medal at the at the World Championships. So we 
we we got ten days just before the World Championships, and then and then never made it. And then the following season, then ninety seven, ninety eight, it was my final year in university. Again, I was hoping to row for Ireland, hoping to actually make it to the World Championships this time. And um, things started to to go wrong with my sight uh, round about. Mid, mid-March of 1998 I was down training and down at the river down at the boathouse and I, I opened the opened the, the bays of the of the boathouse that, that morning and it was kind of a spring morning the sun was coming in and it bounced off the water as I looked out from the dark uh, bays in the in the boathouse and I noticed a blurring around the edge of my vision and it was that kind of blurring that I'd seen previously when I'd had detached retinas in the past and uh, and I knew that something was happening I knew it was having a, another detachment and of course it's it's really really important to get the retina atta- attached as quickly as possible so I I was still able to see enough I was able to cycle back into into Trinity get a train up to Belfast for an examination and then uh, within two weeks I was in Manchester for what I hoped would be a, another sight-saving operation um, which ultimately ultimately didn't, didn't work out to be the case I, I woke up and thought that my sight would clear as it always had in the past from operations and uh, suddenly I'd be able to see again but it did a week went by and it didn't clear and two weeks, three weeks, four weeks and it did the writing was uh, seemingly on the wall so uh, life very much took a, a different turn then age 22 in, in 1998 How did you cope with the change of having vision to not having vision? There were a number of different phases I suppose from April in 98 through to June or really mid-July in 98 I was I'd had an operation and I couldn't see anything, but there was still hope. There was still a chance that I could have another operation and maybe I'd be able to see again. So I was kind of this blind person in reality, but in my head, I I was just temporarily unsighted. Uh, they were going to fix it and I was going to be able to see again. and. Um, that was on the surface, uh, this this idea that I was going to be able to see again, but somewhere deep down when the first operation didn't work, uh, I think without wanting to face up to it, I, I started to understand that, that maybe, maybe it was going to be different. And certainly after the second operation, when I went back to Manchester and I spoke to the consultants and I was holding on to my mum's arm, I had no white stick or anything at the time, but I uh, asked, you know, spoke to the doctor. He, he he said that they couldn't do anything more for me, and, and I kind of shook his hand and said thanks, and linked my mum's arm and headed off across the waiting room. And um, by the time I got to the lift, the lifts, uh, I kind of doubled over with almost a physical reaction to to what I what I'd heard, and there were. Uh, tears, no doubt, uh, not 
not just one set but many many sets of tears trying to trying to understand what what this was going to mean because you see as a sighted person although as I've outlined with you only seeing out of one eye I think I saw myself as a sighted person I didn't um, I didn't know any blind people and I I clearly looking back must have had biases and prejudice against blind people assuming what they could and couldn't do um, work study sport all of these things that mattered to me it just seemed like those were going to be out of reach um, and suddenly hey, I mustn't have thought that blind people did anything like uh, work or study or play sport um, and suddenly whenever I became completely blind I thought those things were going to be uh, out of my reach um, so that loss that, that loss and that sense of not being able to do what I'd always wanted to do uh, and had been doing kind of felt uh, felt overwhelming at the time how long did it take you to eventually come to term and uh, do some of these adventure races you, you were doing mm. well I think I think really over the following four years 98 right through to 2002 you know I, I uh, the first thing I wanted to do was uh, well I had to learn how to become mobile again I got a white stick and I, I got a guide dog and the mobility and the independence around mobility was really really important and I learned how to use the white stick and learned how to cook for myself and then I eventually got my guide dog but running alongside that access to information uh, was going to be really important and you see in, in, in 1998 newspapers weren't online and uh, laptops or smartphones I mean smartphones with apps and so on didn't, didn't exist back then so I had this idea that if I could write a, if I could learn, learn to use a computer to write a letter which I would then print off and send off to try and get a job um, then I'd be you know, I'd be off to a good start. So this kind of access to information with the idea that sometime in the future, I'd be able to read the newspapers online or I'd be able to um, access the kind of information that, that I'd been shut out from um, after I went blind. Those two things were really important, access to information through the computer and access uh, mobility um, with the guide dog and the white stick. And it took me, I got on a computer course for about three or four months got my guide dog in January 99 and then I got a job um, <laughs> through a friend in college I got a, an opportunity to start in a job in back, back in Dublin so I had to I came back down you know, with my brand new guide dog with my laptop with JAWS speech software on it and um, I had this job opportunity to start um, in, in Dublin city centre in an agri-food business doing event management um, at, the, at Punches Town races and about 1,500 people. Uh, for this, this particular company sponsored a, a big tent and they wanted to bring all their clients to Punches Town races. And, uh, and I, with another 
with another girl organised. That was our first kind of mission for the first three, four months of my job. So I think getting a job was important. Um, that lasted for about a year and then I changed jobs. And when I changed jobs, I felt that I wanted to go and re-establish my identity as a as a student. So I did a master's in business studies part-time uh, whilst I was working. Um, and then the third most important part of my identity was, was being a rower. So I was able to get one of the guys I used to row with in college. He, he was also from Northern Ireland and the, the opportunity or at least the possibility of, of going rowing, getting fit, becoming competitive and trying to get on the team, the Northern Ireland team for the Commonwealth Games in 2002 came up and, um, and that, that was a really important part of me feeling like I had rebuilt my identity was getting back in a boat, getting racing and, and ultimately going and winning medals and the silver and bronze of the Commonwealth Games but the medals were almost less important than going up training and being out in the boat with the lads and going to the pub afterwards after races and all that stuff so I, after four years I was working uh, I, I handed in my master's thesis and then, then I had these medals in the Commonwealth Games and through that 2002, four years after I'd gone blind, I had all this stuff and I'd rebuild my identity and I really had to ask myself, well, what, what am I going to do then for the for the longer term? And um, and I, came, I met a black guy called Miles Hilton Barber who does adventure races and speaks and works with uh, businesses. And it was him who got me into the, into the adventure racing. Was this the same guy that also kind of made you this this motivational speaker as well. Yeah, well, that that was he. That was what he he did. I actually stood in stood in for him uh, for a company in in Dublin, and uh, it was a multinational in, based in Dublin. And he 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 couldn't do it because he was away on on some trip. He's a South African guy, he lives in England, but um, he was away on a trip and I got, basically I got his his gig in this company and I uh, went and did a, a lunchtime talk uh, based on my experiences of losing my sight and getting back into sport and I enjoyed it, I don't think I was very good, but uh, I enjoyed it and I set about trying to find out uh, how I could carve out a career in that industry and um, built myself up slowly and started to do adventure races to give an insight into um, teams um, facing challenges and making decisions and I, as my I went on to do six marathons in a week in the Gobi Desert and a marathon at the North Pole and the Dead Sea Ultra Marathon the Everest Marathon and lots of other races, Ironman, Zurich in Switzerland. And eventually, I, 10 years after going blind, I entered a race to, a race to the South Pole over 43 days uh, in Antarctica. There were six teams down there, which I was on one of them, uh, teams of three. And, and I, I suppose that 
my career went hand in hand with the adventure races as I became more experienced in the adventure racing. Uh, so too much speaking became uh, more profitable and I was able to, to build that up and travel internationally and uh, do more and more speaking events. Personally, what did you experience and gain from adventure racing and motivational speaking? Well, I think, uh, you see, at that, at that time, I was, I, I was sort of, well, well mid-twenties. I was trying to carve out a career for myself and I was interested in sport and suddenly I found this opportunity to, to marry the two. Um, I was able to, to push myself to, to the limit. Um, I was able to experience and, uh, experience and study what happens to the mind whenever we face challenges, uh, some of which I chose to take on and the blindness which I hadn't chosen to take on. And I became interested in, in how human beings decide to respond to those challenges. So I was able to experience them, study them, learn about them. Um, I went back and wrote, interviewed people and wrote a book about the, about the subject, which I really enjoyed doing. I enjoyed thinking about it, I enjoyed hearing other people's experience of overcoming challenges. And then I had an opportunity to present uh, those thoughts to businesses, um, to talk to people in the questions and answers afterwards in the one-on-one sessions that I would do with people, hear their stories. And um, I suppose it just, uh, it allowed, the speaking allowed me to do the adventure races and the adventure races facilitated uh, more of the more of the speaking, so it was a it was a great time. It was a uh, it was a great way for me to to rebuild my identity and earn a living and carve out a career for myself. When you're doing these adventures, which one stands out in your mind? The best one that you've done? Well, I think the the South Pole really. Uh, well. Certainly the South, the South Pole, but I suppose it's it's, uh, it's flanked really. Uh, the first one that I ever did with the six marathons in a week in the Gobi Desert, you know, I hadn't really been outside Europe until I went to, to China and on into the uh, the Gobi Desert to do six marathons in a week when I had never even done a marathon before. It was a, a huge stretch and we carried a pack, packs on our back with all our food we'd need for the week. Or, survival gear and sleeping bags and global mats so it it kind of feel, felt like I was a bit of a, a weekend warrior all of it was brand new so the newness of the Gobi Desert that, that just that raw experience was um, was something special but I suppose it it was eclipsed by the South Pole race which was hugely challenging from a a fundraising perspective and also uh, also the, the physical and mental uh, physical and mental aspect of it because it, it I mean it let me think the, what the it was about 80,000 sterling uh, that we had to we had to raise as a team to do the event uh, and of course uh, to raise that kind of money um, takes a, a we were working hard on that as much as we were on the physical side and then the other 
big challenge from a blind perspective was I had done like the Gobi Desert, for example, I was on the limit of time cutoffs whenever it got particularly rocky. Was there loads of rocks in the Gobi Desert as opposed to sand and rocks from a blind perspective? Don't make for easy, easy going. Um, I'd also failed a race in New Zealand called Coast to Coast, where part of it was uh, going up a gorge, hopping from boulder to boulder, and I, I had to go extremely slowly so I didn't fall off and injure, my, injure myself. So in preparation for the South Pole, there, there's stuff called Sistrugi, which is uh, their catamatic winds which carve trenches into the ice in Antarctica. And they can be anything from 10 centimeters high up to two or three meters. Uh, sort of waves of this of these trenches um, in, in the snow. And I just didn't know whether the blindness was going to be a factor in holding our team back or whether I was going to be able to race down there because I wasn't doing, you know, I wasn't doing any of these things to be a passenger. I was, I was doing them to be competitive. It was to replicate what I've done as a teenager in, in, in rowing. And uh, when I got down to Antarctica, well, event, first of all, we we got the money eventually, 2000 3000 5000 um donation, not, no big sponsor, just people who wanted to be part of it, wanted to be part of the team. And after a year of getting the money together, we, we were down in this, uh, incredible landscape in Antarctica with the uh, the snow and the ice all around facing into this terrain where I wasn't sure whether I was going to be able to to get across the terrain and then as it turned out I had the skis gave an incredible amount of information and the ski poles gave it was, it was like having two white sticks and then also kind of extensions on your feet to feel what was happening with the terrain. And the other part of the the whole experience down there was we had designed, uh, based on the guide dog harness system, I had two carbon fiber poles attached from my, my hands on the ski poles forward to the back of my, one of my teammates' sledges. So I also had those poles going left, right, up, down, so, uh, and I could feel the direction how I should be following the guys in, the guys in front. So I had a huge amount of extra information coming through the skis, the poles, and, and then the sledge in front connected by the carbon fiber poles, which allowed me to, to race very competitively um, in that environment with uh, racing against the you know, Norwegian Special Forces and double Olympic gold medal rower, James Cracknell from Great Britain and Ben Fogel, a TV adventurer and, and Royal Mar- British Royal Marines and all sorts of adventurers where where I was very much in the mix, very much competitive and uh, we were third and third place for most of the race and just uh, with about three days to go, one of the team, my teammates got frostbite on his uh, on his left hand, we dropped down by about half a day and just, just came in and fit the place behind uh, a couple of hours behind the fourth place team. So I suppose the money, the terrain, 
uh, 16 hours a day on skis at minus 50 degrees. The dragging of the sledge, just being isolated for 43 days in Antarctica, all of it was uh, really, really difficult, but the risk of failure was kind of always there. But I suppose that risk of failure is why ultimately the success felt felt like it was worth it. And uh, I felt very content with what we had done uh, by the time we reached the South Pole. I know at the moment you're you're looking to walk again, but do you feel the adventures you did prepared you on a like a spiritual or psychological level for what you're doing at the moment? Yeah, I think uh, I, 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 like I wasn't I wasn't back long after the after the South Pole whenever I had the accident about maybe eighteen months, uh, sixteen months after I got back from the South Pole, and I. When I was lying in hospital for close to a year and a half, I was thinking, well, what? You know, the whole point of my post-blindness identity was really mirrored my pre-blindness identity. I just wanted to compete. Uh, I wanted to race. And I, and I found that uh, back in rowing and at these adventure races. And when I became paralyzed, blind and paralyzed, I just couldn't see a way of how how I could compete. Certainly in the adventure racing, I, I, I just you know I just wouldn't be competitive. I'd be holding the the, the other teammates back. And when I looked at the when I looked at the para, Paralympic sport, it it seems that a lot of the blind sports like tandem cycling or rowing or any of the things that that I would naturally have been inclined to go and do um, they require you to be able to use your legs and then all of the wheelchair sports uh, they're all done solo so they require you to be able to see so with the combination of blindness and paralysis then I couldn't I couldn't take part in Paralympic sport either and this this frustration uh, was building up in, inside me and, and I think as a result, my my outlet has been to try and approach uh, finding a cure, or at least my rehabilitation, which has ultimately turned into a quest to find a cure for paralysis. I've been pouring all of the sporting and expeditioning experience into what I do on a daily basis in 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 the sports hall in Trinity, which is walking in walking in uh, robotic legs, uh, having my spinal cord electrically stimulated and following a, 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 a training regime which, which really mirrors much of what I did in preparation for the, for the South Pole. It's just the, the speed at which I do things is a lot slower and the, the destination is uh, not geographic uh, like the South Pole but, uh, but rather it's a it's one where we're, we're hoping to discover, uh, uncover a cure for paralysis. When you realised that you couldn't walk again, being blind, what ran through your head? Well, in the bed, it takes a long time to sink in because um, I remember in hospital whenever I was, whenever when I eventually was able to get out of bed and down to the rehab uh, gym. I was learning how to use a wheelchair 
I was trying to learn how to use a wheelchair with a white stick. And I was thinking when I got back from England, where where I was in the hospital, I was I was picturing myself going up and down Grafton Street in Dublin, and I was thinking about the the routes that I used to do with my guide dog and with my white stick. And I was practicing how I, I would be able to do those routes on on my own. Um, but eventually, it really became clear that the independence that I had regained with uh, with Larry, my guide dog, uh, or with and with my white stick, that that from a from a safety perspective, that just wasn't going to be possible like if you fall off you know if you fall off the curb whenever you're blind it's it's not that that big a deal but if you get it wrong in the you know if I got it wrong in the wheelchair and I tipped off the curb or put my wheel over the edge of the curb and got it wrong I'd fall out of the wheelchair may not be able to get back into it you know just so very quickly, no, not very quickly, in fact, very slowly, it, it dawned on me that I was going to have to rely on um, carers and care assistants to get up in the morning to help me get my clothes, to help me leave, the, leave my house. Um, and that, that, that requirement to be with a carer was really, really difficult for me to swallow because when I was blind you know I've like I flew to New York and did talks in New York on my own I flew to Hong Kong and did uh, on my own I went to I went to Sydney and on my own so I was very independent and I suspected from people that I know who have my type of injury uh, who are paralyzed from the waist down can use their arms they're very, they're very independent. They drive, drive themselves. They live on their own. They're, they're very independent. So I can kind of, you know, I can use my arms. I can push my wheelchair, but uh, I just can't go, go anywhere. So it was really, really difficult to square that in my head that, uh, that I was going to have to rely on people. When you realised you had to rely on people, when did your uh, journey start to pick the people, the robotics, etc.? Well, I think. I think there were two. There were there were two things that that, that I really discussed at length with psychologists in hospital and also with my fiance Simon, who was who was with me in hospital, and um, and I wrote about this in in blogs and so on. You see, I I think I think it's important. Or certainly, it was important for me. Um, to accept that that I am paralysed and and bind and that may not change and in the acceptance of it I also have to re- I also have to accept that life there is a, very much a life to be worth uh, a life to be led that is worth living uh, as a blind and paralysed person and looking after relationships and um, getting back to work or college or uh, staying fit or doing all of these things. Loads of people around the world who are paralyzed and blind have uh, 
very fulfilled lives and I, I really needed to accept that it may not it may never change um, and I need to get on with life in the wheelchair but running alongside that um, when I started to do the rehab and I started to feel good in the gym um, getting weight through my legs and, and, and doing that work I started to think that the hope side of the equation possibly to explore explore the possibility of finding a cure was also worth uh, looking at so I kind of run these two things in parallel acceptance that life may not change in one hand but also that the hope side of the equation uh, is, is worth looking at so I looked at the physical exercise side of things to see if I could train my way out of the wheelchair and I went to England to work with a guy in England I went to the States to work at a couple of uh, aggressive physical therapy centers over there and then in 2012 which is what two maybe two years after my accident 18 months I went to test a set of robotic legs in uh, San Francisco uh, made by a company called Exobionics and I also tried another set made by an Israeli firm called Rewalk but uh, Exobionics were felt better to me and I tested them started to uh, use them in, in Cambridge in England for a while and then eventually in late, late 2012 I got my own set but just walk just exercising and just walking in the robot wasn't going to fix the problem so we started to meet scientists in Cambridge and Harvard and Louisville and eventually in UCLA and Los Angeles uh, who, particularly the people in Los Angeles were they were using electrical stimulation of the spine to excite the nervous system so that um, people could voluntarily start to re-engage the, the paralyzed muscles and what we've done since 2013 2014 is uh, we now fund the research scientist in, in Dublin in Trinity College back in Trinity College in Dublin and um, now to to build that collaboration between Ireland and America uh, around electrical stimulation and robotics to try and uh, try and see if we can make a make a difference in people's lives. So I've been primarily doing it myself uh, up until now, but we now have twenty paralysed people who are going through the first stages of the research. We're comparing those with twenty able-bodied people, and um, so that will lead on to a clinical trial next year uh, where we'll take six people uh, and put them through a similar regime to what I've been doing uh, and then hopefully in the next three, four years some some of these interventions, particularly the electrical stimulation, will become available for um, for people in the, in the clinic. So uh, we're ma- making progress, never quick enough, but we're making progress. Yeah, when you stood f- this uh, for the first time uh, in May 2016, Mark, what was running through your head? Uh, yeah, well, so so we did this one, well, apart from the elect- standing and the elect- uh, sorry, walking with the electrical stimulation on the spine. The other thing that we do is is I stand, but uh, well, I roll my wheelchair up to a squat rack and we put the bar about what would be chest height 
and I grab onto the uh, chest height if you're standing so I grab onto the bar put my feet on the ground and then the physio or my trainer sits in front of me on a bench and he he kind of jams my knees uh, pushes those backwards and I pull forward lifting my hips up and I go into a standing position but earlier uh, earlier this year was it late last year last year um, we turned we used the electrical stimulation of the spine to kind of almost like a mobile phone booster to charge up the nervous system um, so that I could voluntarily engage my muscles and as I engaged my muscles my glutes my quads uh, my calves my feet everything was was engaging uh, my knees came away from my trainers hands my hips came forward and I was, and I was standing there uh, just with my hands very very lightly holding onto the bar so it was um, it was amazing to be there standing independently and of course um, I'm immediately thinking well this is great but you know, it's not it's not good enough there's a, just standing like this in a gym isn't isn't going to get me walking again it's not going to fix me so even in those in that early breakthrough moment I was still I was immediately thinking what next what next what next because uh, you know the impact of paralysis on on people um, on individuals and, and people's families and society and it, it's a it's something that that really up until now there was no hope of of a cure and I'm, I'm impatient to to try and get these things out of research labs into into clinics so other people can can access them your program run in the dark tell us about that yeah well the early on it became clear that there was going to be no funding for what we were trying to do which was to find and connect people around the world to fast track a cure for paralysis so um we figured that you know it's not going to be done overnight so we needed to come up with a funding uh, mechanism to try and uh, to try and do what we have been doing over the last five years and what we will be doing over the next few years so um so we set up originally whenever i was still in hospital uh, friends of mine set up more public trust and that these trusts are generally uh generally raise money for kind of capital and ongoing costs of, of of the spinal injury but I was able to very quickly get back into my speaking work and then we got into uh, our efforts to find a cure for paralysis so um, so we we needed to we set up a it was supposed to be a, a 5 and 10k run happening in Belfast, Dublin, Cork and Galway in year one which it was, but we had these people from friends in Sydney and Singapore and America saying, well, we can't come back for the run. It's all on one night, so can we do one in Sydney and uh, Singapore and various places around the world? So it's kind of grown from that early multi-city event into one which now has um, 28,000 28, people this year in 55 cities all around the world. 
uh, running at Run in the Dark uh, every November. And, and we use that money, as I say, to, to fund what we're doing to bring people together to, to fast track a cure for paralysis. Who inspires you to do what you do? You know, different people at different times uh, have have inspired me. Uh, Ernest Shackleton um, and Tom Crean, polar explorers, uh, their stories of exploration have have excited me and inspired me to to push the boundaries of what of what's possible. Um, and then that kind of those types of people throughout history have. Um, set about writing, uh, rewriting accounts of of the impossible and making them possible. So, I think any explorer that I that I learn about, that I read about, uh, excites me and inspires me to do what I to do what I do. And and that is true also for the scientists that we now work with, um, from UCLA and from Trinity, who are in my mind modern day explorers, exploring the potential of, of the human body um, these people that, that I am privileged to work with are trying to to take something that is impossible right now which is to find a cure for paralysis and, and make it possible through their work so people people like that people who think differently people who don't accept the status quo who challenge conventional wisdom uh, all of these people inspire me. Do you have a particular quote that motivates you or um, gets you to do what you want to do? Yeah, I, I, I think about it all, all the time. It comes from a... Uh, I, I came across it in a book called Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. And in that book, he, he quotes a philosopher, Friedrich Nietzsche, who says... He who has a why to live can bear with almost any hard. He, he who has a why to live can bear with almost any hard. And my interpretation of that is that if, if we know why we're doing what we're doing, then we can put up with the tough stuff. So I always try and come back to, to that when I'm finding things difficult. And uh, I gotta know why, why I'm doing what I'm doing. And uh, when I can answer that, then it's, uh, in the work that you do, where do you see, like, is, do you see yourself walking in 10 years, five years, or are you just going day by day? Uh, yeah, it's, a, it, it's, a, it's an interesting one because what we're, you know, we're not there yet. Nobody's there anywhere in the world yet. So uh, I, I have to assume that one day it will work. Um, the question is, will will it ever work for me? Will it ever be normal? And the way I square this this challenge, I have to believe that uh, that one day we will find a cure. Um, but even if we don't in, in in time for for it to be meaningful for me, I I feel like we're we're making. A significant contribution to the field of research by bringing these people together, and um, and that that is that is what keeps keeps me going. That we're we're making a we've got a chance to make a difference, and and indeed 
we are making a difference. So I think you know the robotic legs are available. They're too expensive. We'll get them into clinics. The electrical stimulation is not yet available. Uh, so we're making a, diff- a difference there. We we expect with the funding that's in place now that uh, we'll see that out in four or five years. But probably for me to walk again, we're probably going to have to add in a couple of other interventions uh, that are not yet. They're in research, but not yet. Um, not yet. We don't yet have a time time scale for when they'll when be out there yet. But uh, five, ten years, I think. Um, I think is it uh, Bill Gates? Bill Gates from Microsoft said, said that we we have a tendency to overestimate what we can do in one year and underestimate what we can do in ten years. So. Uh, Let's say, let's say I'll be walking here again in 10 years uh, if we're going with Bill Gates' uh, uh, thinking. Mark, I want to say thank you and I wish you um, uh, being able to walk again um, comes true. Well, th- thanks very much and uh, good, to, good to talk to you. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.